Welcome again to First Christian Church today. To those of you here in the West, we're very glad you're with us. To those in the East Auditorium, hello again. I was over there just now, coming from there, and it's good to see all of you over there worshiping the Lord together. And to those who are in Lovington, we're very glad you also are with us today as we are a congregation discovering what God wants us to do throughout central Illinois, and so it's good stuff. For those who are guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm going to spend some time with you in Scripture today. If you'll take a Bible, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 2. You can see the page numbers if you grab a pew Bible from either uh, here in the West or also in Lovington. There's two Bibles in the pew racks over there, one large print. And then in the East Auditorium, if you need a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, there's some people moving around there right now. And uh, we'll get to that Lovington, to get to that, pardon me, Philippians chapter one in just a moment or two. Before there, if you will, uh, a story about this room right here where we are right now. Uh, we, we affectionately call this the West Auditorium, though when we moved here in 1996, it was the only auditorium we had. And uh, we'd broken ground in the summer before. We moved in in June of 1996. The summer before, uh, we'd broken ground and we laid all the footings and did a lot of uh, the preliminary work and all that sort of stuff. And then as the fall was moving along, the walls went up. And so the walls went up there made by, with two by eights and some um, plywood sheeting on the outside before the bricks were to be put on the outside after that. And uh, so we had the walls up. I say we, I was not putting them up. I was here watching. I was overseeing, that's what I was, no, I, I was just here watching. And um, the, the walls, this, so this wall right here is uh, 23 feet high right here in the room and a little bit higher outside. And um, so the wall was up. And we had it supported by long two-by-fours that were connected together. And it was, we were going to, you know, put the trusses on because the roof is what actually supports the walls and causes them to stay up. Well, wouldn't you know it, the day we had everything up, that evening, after all the work had been done, a huge wind came through and it was like a big sail right here. You know, wood with plywood. And this wall over here and the wall behind me all caved in. We came back here the next day and we had to put them all up again. And, uh, you know, you don't build a church expecting the walls to cave in, do you? You want it to stay standing, and that's why you put, one of the reasons why the roof trusses are so important, because they help maintain the stability of the building. Uh, we had all the staff of our church in the Lovington Church over the week. We went over there on Tuesday for our monthly staff meeting, and right above the doorway of that church, it says, built, you know, 1901. That building has stood there as a beacon of light in that community for more than 100 years now, and it's built to last. This room here is built to last, and as I've been thinking about that, it, it occurs to me that's this business of walls being built to last, and sometimes they cave in if you don't do it right, that's a metaphor or a picture of how congregations can be at times. You build them, and you work on them, and you get them up, but then sometimes if you don't pay attention, you've seen this occur in churches that you're familiar with. The systems break down, and the next thing you know, everything's caving in on itself. And so what we want to do for the next few weeks is we're going to review uh, some important building blocks. What does it take to build up a church well? And we're going to look at these important building blocks of healthy churches. And we won't tackle every aspect of healthiness that the scriptures talk about. We won't have time for that. But we'll strive to look at a few of the biblical principles. And so scripture has many principles for what it means to be a healthy congregation. 
And we're gonna start today with some flowing out of Philippians. And perhaps you're familiar with Philippians, but let me assume that you don't know a lot about this, that story. And so I'll give you a bit of background so you can get, catch a hold of what's going on in the book of Philippians before we read. Thinking of um, how Jesus came to earth, he had ministry, he died, he rose again, and he went to heaven. And the early church was established in that time of at the very beginnings of the early church, there was a leading political figure in Jewish life in Israel, and he was opposed to the life of the church. He, he didn't think being Christians was a good thing, and he would actually persecute the church and arrange for, for Christians to be, to be imprisoned until he had a dramatic encounter with God himself and this man of some renown within Judaism with a very strong, systematic, legal mind and a religious background he, as a Christian, began traveling around the Mediterranean and establishing churches in a lot of the places where he visited. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And in all honesty, he was such a formidable force and had such a powerful impact upon each city that he went to that eventually the authorities caught up with him because they didn't like what he would, would occur as he'd go into town. He'd start a church and there'd be all sorts of struggle. And so they put him in jail. They put him in a Roman jail and... He entered his life, from all we know, in a Roman jail. And while he was in jail, uh, he would write letters back to these congregations that he founded. And so Philippians is a long letter written to the congregation that he founded probably 10 years prior to when he's writing. And I want you to see where we're headed in the long run. We're, in the long run today, we're headed to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves and a man worthy of the gospel. That's where we're headed, but it's gonna take some time to get there. So be mindful, when we get to 27, okay, we're, we're coming to where, what the focus is. So we're gonna read with these things in mind. Paul the Apostle, he's writing from prison to a congregation that he founded. It's not to, written to individuals per se, it's written to a congregation, and he's in a Roman prison, or at best he's under house arrest, and he's aware that in the Roman Empire, at any moment, say the wrong thing and it's off with your head. So his life is at jeopardy. And here's what we can learn about congregational structures and being built correctly from Philippians chapter 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's who's writing the letter. Then here's it to, it's a memo, if you will, from and then to, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Those are the church leaders. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's quite pleased. He's just had a visitor come from Philippi who um, actually brought some money. And so you're in prison. You don't know how you're going to survive. It's different than our world. And... Um, and so he, he's quite, hey, you've remembered me, and I'm quite glad for that affection. And so I thank you for that, and I'm confident of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, this affection that I have for you. I, I, I feel good about having that since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. 
So he's got this affection going. He's, he's writing to his congregation. It's a difficult situation for him. And in the middle of it, he says something that's really important. Go back to verse 6, okay? What is he saying there? This is written to a congregation. He's saying, God is working among you. In other words, you, some churches at times, and we don't sense that Philipp, the church at Philippi was inclined to do this, they're kind of just static, waiting. If only Jesus would come back, everything will be all right. And I get that, but at the same time, pining for the return of Jesus Christ is not an excuse for not doing anything. And he's saying, you know, don't just hope for better days, but be aware of this, that God is engaged in your life together, and that engagement has an end purpose in mind. There's a task that's in front of you, and God's going to bring it to completion. That means that for like here in central Illinois, here in Decatur and Lovington, this is written to a congregation like ours. And I can say we are like the audience today, and it's written acknowledging there's a plan in place, and we cannot say that the end of our mission has arrived yet. There's more to be accomplished. And frankly, I find, that, I find that very hopeful for congregations of all types and sizes and histories. That you say, man, the walls are up or the walls are falling down. Okay, fair enough. But what are we going to do for the days ahead to make certain that we get the walls and where they're supposed to be and that this job that God's given us will carry on to completion? For the Christians here in Decatur, that means there are more mission endeavors for us to complete. And how will we accomplish those mission endeavors together? For those in Lovington, you have to say, okay, there's a community around us in need of Jesus Christ. And what will it take to see those who live in the homes and work on the farms around Lovington, what will it take for them to come to know Jesus Christ? That's the task of the church. What does God have in mind for us? We're not just going to rest and say we did something in the last 180 years, but no, what are we doing in 2018 in preparation for what God's going to do through us in 2019? And with that, Paul then says, okay, you've got this job, you've got it in play, and now I want you to know how much I'd really like to come and see you, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Verse 19. I know that your prayers and God's provision of the, Holy, of the Spirit through Jesus Christ, I know that through that, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Somewhere along the line, I'm not going to be in prison anymore. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. He's kind of worried. You know, I, I might die. Will I be courageous? I, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I might live, I might die, but will Christ be exalted? For if, to me... To live is Christ. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. And yet if I die, I'm okay with that as well because I'll get to see him face to face. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? To live or die? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of that, I know I'll remain. I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. It's a courageous viewpoint, isn't it? I'm here in prison, and the way things go in the Roman Empire, I could be dead tomorrow. I may die. On the other hand, I might get to come and live and get to live and come and see you, and I'd really like that, but if I die, how courageous is it to say? It's all settled. 
I'm right with God, I'm right with you, and I, I think it'd be cool to live because I could testify to the work of Christ, but on the other hand, if I die, it's all good. It's all settled. And then we come to the focus of today's passage. He says to in verse 27, whatever happens, whether I live or die, and whatever you guys do with your mission, whatever happens, do this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying, my death or life does not eliminate your life and mission as a congregation. You have a responsibility regardless of the setting, regardless of the situation. Live your life as a church in a way that is worthy of Jesus' gospel. That's how, and you go, okay, I'll do that, but what's that gospel? What, I gotta live it worthy of Jesus' gospel. What does that mean? Well, here's the gospel. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for all people. And so based on his sacrificial de death, we are to live accordingly. Don't squander the possibilities of your mission and, your, and all the things that this work that God is working out in you to bring it to completion. Stay on task. Build the church. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. What do you say? This is about you. This is about me. This is about our church. It's about a congregational lifestyle. It's about a congregational viewpoint, a congregational, congregational culture or attitude that says we, we, we have a task to do and we're going to do it. And as we do that task, we're going to be certain that we answer this question. The question of verse 27. What does it mean to conduct church life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it mean that we're going to do church in light of a sacrificial death on G, uh, that Jesus did on our behalf. So we're gonna spend the next few weeks reviewing the, that sort of question, asking what does it take to build a culture and a congregational approach? We need a life approach together that honors and um, what needs to be honored, if you will, and some, we need a congregational viewpoint that holds true to scripture's understanding while understanding, and let me put it this way, Bob, while using language that is understood by the present generation. So today, with that background, if you will, can I give you, I'd like to give you some understandings of what the scriptures have to say about this, this life together and doing it in a way that is in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it take to build a Christ-honoring congregational culture? You have to start with this one. You have to give glory to God. We have to start there. Because as individual Christians, anything we do has to move through that filter. Is the manner of my life, the way in which I'm living, is it bringing glory to God? Anything a congregation does has to answer the same question. Is the way in which I'm living bringing glory to God? Is the way in which we are living together bringing glory to God? Does my conversation in the building bring glory to God? Does my conversation outside the building give glory to God? Does our, do our mission endeavors and our projects and the things that we do as a church, do they bring glory to God? The first characteristic of a healthy church that's being built up properly is that it brings glory to God. Well, now we're going to come back in more depth to that in the coming weekend because uh, next weekend as we look at it, we'll start 
We'll come back and say, okay, that is the primary thing. But after the primary thing of giving glory to God, Scripture has all kinds of ways in which congregations can be built up. And to be honest, I don't know exactly what's, what the right priority of all of those are. So we're going to take a stab at a few of them. And I want to start today with um, an example that comes from the ancient church. Just to the first way we say after giving glory to God, the next thing we should do. The ancient church, you, f- you find these group of Christians who had no church culture. There was nobody who said, well, this is what you do when you act like church. This is how, I mean, they're making it up sort of as they go in the early church. And what you find there is that they have a lot of tradition that comes out of Jewish life, uh, certainly in Jerusalem. But beyond that, they're always able to pivot to the needs of each setting. And so they, they say, okay, so this is our tradition but we're not going to have an, an unhealthy adherence to a traditional view, if you will. We're mindful of our tradition and history, but that tradition is not the sole shaper of our plans. Uh, in other words, a God-honoring, healthy congregation is one that can shift and change. Our church, both Lovington and Decatur, we have a history that's 180 plus years old. That history is really important. But if we're going to do the work of God moving forward, carrying it to greater completion, we can't rely on that history alone. So if you're you're new, perhaps, to my understanding of what Scripture calls us to do, you should discover that one of the things we always do around here is we do this. Remember what that is? Come on, what's it called? We embrace change, right? And uh, I know it gets tiresome after a while. But I'm mindful always that if we don't change, we become static and we get left behind. Now, one of the things that cannot change is our understanding of Scripture. We took a, we we made a, 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 put a stake in the ground, as did the Lovington Church some 30 years ago, and said, we will hold to what Scripture has to say. That is non-moving, non-negotiable. But but that's our that's our message. But in terms of our methods, we'll try any variety of things that will tell people about the story of Jesus Christ. Because a non-moving view of Scripture does not preclude changes in congregational life and mission endeavors. We hold true to our message while adapting our methods. And I'm aware that each time this topic comes up, we're all inclined to say, myself included, you know, Wayne, you don't know what you're asking. I'm really not into change. It's too hard. Well, I understand that. But can I tell you about something that happened in Sweden in 1967 regarding change that I think might be very helpful? September 3rd, 1967, some 51 years ago now, up until the 3rd of September, all the cars in Sweden were like the cars in Great Britain, which are different than the cars here in North America, right? When we drive, we sit on what side of the car? Left-hand side, right? But, you, but in Great Britain, you sit on the right-hand side. We drive down the right-hand side of the road. They drive down the left-hand side of the road. And until 1967, Sweden was exactly like that. They would get in their cars, and they would sit on the right-hand side of the car. They'd drive down the left-hand side of the road. But the Swedish authorities were taking note of what the population was doing that a lot of them were buying cars from Europe, the, from the mainland of Europe, and then they had people driving cars where they were, you know, the driver's side was on the wrong side of the road, and a lot of people were traveling to Europe, and so they'd drive onto ferries to cross the Baltic Sea, and they'd drive on on the left-hand side, and then when they'd get across to Europe, they'd have to drive on the other side of the road, and they thought, this is not good. Maybe we should switch. So on September 3rd, 1967, 
at five o'clock in the morning, everyone started driving on the other side of the road. Can you imagine that day? It was called Hagatrophic Kumlagen. Dog and H, day is, the Swedish word for day is dog and dog and H. And so to do this, at midnight the night before, they changed all the signs on the roads. Now it's a smaller population back then. 360,000 signs had to go from one side of the road to the other side of the road. They had to change all the traffic patterns so where there was an, an arrow pointer, uh, that was painted on the roadway, they had to put it on the other side of the road or else. And then, think about city buses. So when you get on a city bus, you would automatically, you know that there's the way you get in and out on the right-hand side, but if you would start and the buses are on the other side of the road, they had to change all those buses and provide ways that people could get 8,000 buses in Stockholm alone. And at 5 a.m. Monday, 5 a.m. September 3rd, 1967, everybody who's driving along stops and drives to the other side of the road. I would not be on the road. I'd find something else to do at 4.59. I mean, Okay, so what if my watch is off by three minutes? What side of the road should I drive in right now? Is it really? Can you imagine the accidents? What's fascinating is they knew, the Swedish authorities knew how many accidents usually occurred on Mondays. And on that particular day, the average number of accidents dropped way down. Why? Because people said, we're going to change. We're going to change. And I would say this. If the Swedes, lovely people, they really are. Sweden's a lovely, lovely nation. I've been there a number of times. If the Swedes could switch driving patterns for the sake of safety, surely our church can change when needed for the sake of living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another characteristic of a Christ-honoring congregation. Churches that live in a manner worthy of the gospel look for growth. They look for growth both corporately and individually. They go, ah, I don't want to grow. Well, think about it this way. If a body doesn't grow over time, we consider that unhealthy. You say, well, Wayne, I'm 36 years of age. I don't want to grow because if I grow, it's just going to go this way. Well, let me tell you. You're growing older, right? You are growing. You're growing older. Because the alternative to growing older is not real pretty. Right? If you don't grow older, you're going to stop. You're going to be dead, dead man. So I, I, I think about if, if you had a baby that was six months old and uh, your baby hadn't grown from what he or she looked like at, say, at six weeks old, and at six months old, the baby hasn't changed at all, would, would you be pleased with that? No, that'd be a crisis, right? You'd be taking it to the doctor, and the doctor would say, this baby hasn't changed in four and a half months. We need to call in a bunch of experts. First Christian Church, we must grow. We must grow in size. We must grow in maturity. And the only way that happens, the only, this is to the, to the church. I want you to keep doing your mission that, that God's going to bring to completion. That the only way that's going to happen, the only way that growth is going to occur, if each of us as individuals grow as well. If we grow as individuals, then our 
congregation's mission will grow and we will impact Central Illinois to a greater degree for the sake of Jesus Christ's gospel. That's important because I want to, just for today, bring the last characteristic of today of a Christ-honoring culture within a congregation. And that is that, that decisions need to be made with the next generation in mind. And so you say, well, great, Wayne, that's, that's lovely. I can see how the change is warranted and the growth is warranted in the Philippians passage we read, but where's there anything about the next generation? You know, we can read, whatever happens, conduct yourself worthy in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, but where is the next generation there? Well, frankly, friends, it's, it's the back at the very beginning of the letter. Look who's sending the letter. Can you read verse one again? See, the language throughout the letter is fully Pauline, is how theologians would say it. That it, if you compare the book of Philippians to other books that, was, that were written by Paul, the vocabulary is quite similar. It sounds and feels like Paul. But what's interesting is the letter is actually from two people, Paul and Timothy. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. We know quite a bit about Paul from what we've already talked about today. He's in prison, he's an old guy, and so forth and so on. He's the hero, if you will, the statesman, the leading voice of the early church. But now he's older and he's aware of his influence and he knew that, hey, if I die here in this Roman prison, or even if I get to live, it's not gonna be for much longer and I've got to be able to pass off the leadership baton to someone coming after him and he's chosen Timothy. Here's what we know about Timothy. Timothy was a young man, probably a teenager, we think, um, when his family first met Paul and, he, and his family came to Christ. And there was a bond between Timothy and this older man that may have been even so much as 20 years or more older than Timothy. And um, Paul's getting along a little bit and he, he goes, you know, it'd be really nice to have somebody to carry all the luggage wherever I go. I got a lot of planes and trains to get. No, he didn't get on planes and trains, but I got to walk a long way. Somebody should carry the luggage. And so he, I guess, hires this young kid. And the young kid, Timothy, spends a lot of years with Paul to the point where you get to Philippians. And the young kid is no longer a kid, but he's now a young man. And the next generation is standing right beside the old man. And when you say, I don't see anything about the next generation in this passage of scripture, it's right there. It's explicitly said about growing and about how we have to plan for the future, but it's implicitly here as well saying, just by Paul saying, I got this young guy with me, he's saying, he's modeling, he's demonstrating that older Christian and older mature Christians need to adapt to the needs and ministries of younger people. <laughs> Who'd be kidding? Sometimes, again, that means change and struggle and trying to figure it out. And my point is this. A congregation that conducts itself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ plans for the next generation. And those plans have to include teaching the next generation how to give glory to God. They have to include uh, showing them how they need to shift and adapt and while they're growing in Christ every day. And I'm learning that in helping our younger people around here, um, that that endeavor requires change on my part. Because frankly, the kids of today, they do things differently than, than uh, the older generation, the generation before them. For example, last Sunday evening, we had this open house for the Koskinens, who, uh, by the way, their move went fine, and they're up in Wisconsin all as well. And I was hanging out with some of the teenagers, and they asked me if I could do 
this latest dance craze called the floss. And they decided that they wanted to teach it to me. So, okay, I don't mind learning this dance, but as in any event that things like this are going on today, where someone might be made a fool of, usually there's somebody also with a cell phone recording it. <laughs> you know where this is going, don't you? So there I am trying to learn to do this dance called the floss, and somebody's got a cell phone, and then without my permission, <laughs> without my direction, and without my personal signature, it got uploaded to Facebook. <laughs> the whole world has seen me look like a fool. And so since they did that, I'll let you join in. Take a look. Okay, so if we are going to be a congregation in three different auditoriums that says we are going to adapt to the future, stand up. Please, go ahead and stand up, okay? And in the West, in the East, and in Lovington, in all three places, we're going to see if we can do this as an example of the fact that we can learn new things. So, since all those teenagers were kind enough to put me in this awkward moment, I commandeered their time because I'm their preacher and I'm more powerful than they are. <laughs> They're standing back there waiting to be summoned forward. Come on, guys, stand up here. Come up here with me now. And does anyone else, do any of you kids know how to do this? Okay, come on, come on. Do you guys know how to do this? Come on, come on up here. Do you guys know how to do the floss? Come on, guys, everybody up here knows how to do it. Come on over here. All right. Okay, here's, so this is an endeavor for us to say we as a congregation can learn new things. And East Auditorium, you're to do this as well. Lovington, we're learning new things together. This is our example of how adaptable to change we are. I know how to do this. Start with your hands over here. And then as you come switch sides, you're going to go one in front, one in the back. And then forward again. All right, then everything comes round in front, and you do that again. Now, can I just remind some of you that some of you have hips that are a little bit older? Yeah. Be careful that you don't throw it out. We don't want the paramedics to come. We want to demonstrate that we are able to do this. You guys, you ready? How fast can you guys do this? Pretty fast? Okay, we're getting a little bit of music going, and we'll do it slowly at first, and then these guys will take over. Trust me, because my hips can't do it. You ready? Some of you are not coordinated at all. All right, guys, take it away now. Look at that. Good job, guys. 
Bless y'all. Thanks. All right. Stay standing. Good job, everybody. Thank you so much. Give me a hand. Oh. A little bit of fun, yes, but what's the point? We are a congregation that says we're going to figure out how to do life in the days ahead in ways that are new and different, and it might be a little bit awkward. <laughs> it might look strange at first, but in the long run, if we do it enough and we figure it out, we might even get to make it look fluid. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll let God work in us, and we'll let God finish the job that he started. Amen?